Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite our history and heritage professionals to get angry. The podcast where our learned historians sign the death warrant of popular myth and have the courage, at least this time, to openly admit it. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend and co-conspirator, Kyle Glover. Hello! And this week, dear ragers, we are continuing our newfound rage against bloody Tudors. And to take us on this journey fleeing from persecution, well, she might have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but she has the heart and stomach of a true history rager. Tonight, we welcome historian and author of God's Traitors and the Siege of Loyalty House, Jesse Childs. Jesse, welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much for having me. That that's probably the best intro I've ever had. See, you don't get that Chalk Valley, do you? <laughs> so so we met last year at the Chalk Valley History Festival, where you gave us a short intro to today's rage. Um, but can you give our baying mob of history ragers an insight into you and what set you off down this particular persecution path? Ooh. Well, it might have had something to do with trips to the Chamber of Horrors. Do you remember it, Madame Tussauds? My daddy <laughs> How could me and my sister there. It was, and it was always. It, I mean, it was. It was sort of. It was London dungeon style horror, but I did kind of love it. And I loved castles, and I loved uh, priest holes, and all the sort of murky bits of history. I, I quite enjoyed. Um, so maybe that sort of sparked it. And I always, I always loved the Tudors. Actually, the bloody Tudors. Um, I agree with you that they might get a bit too much airtime. And actually, if I if I had another rage, it would be that the Civil War needs to be known about a lot more than it is. And it's kind of sad. Yeah. I think somewhere along the line, it's become Tudors or Stuarts instead of both. And I think I think if you if you study both, then you get a much better picture of, of both of them. But anyway, yeah. So first book was set in Henry VIII's reign. It was a biography of the last chap executed by Henry VIII. He was called. Henry Howard, and he was first cousin to Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, and he was a poet and a soldier, and he was innocent, I think. Um, and then the second one was called God's Traitors. It was about a Catholic family in Elizabethan England. And yeah, as you say, this last one, the Siege of Loyalty House, is in the Civil War, 
and uh, it was published earlier this year. Congratulations. And uh, I'm sure an absolutely stomping book that is currently working its way through my giant pile of shame. <laughs> um, so, I mean, did you start out as a historian? Did you start out as a writer? Did you study history? I did. I I did history for A-level. I did history at Oxford. And then I was certain I didn't want to be an academic, actually. But I did want to carry on with history. So the first job I did was um, in a TV production company. I'd seen, you know, that there was that brilliant Enigma documentary. This must be about ah, almost 30 years ago. But I, I remember thinking, oh, I want to do that. So I, I started at the bottom rank of the ladder at a TV production company. And ended up sort of writing these 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 proposals that said things like, well, it didn't matter who, Henry VIII, Napoleon, Genghis Khan, bestrode the earth like a colossus. You know, it was all for American <laughs> companies. And it kind of um, took out all the contradictions and complexities of history, which I kind of loved. So, but what it, I didn't last long, but what I did really love about it was that it got me reading um you know, popular history books, trade books, the ones in Waterstones. And I hadn't really done that for my degree at all. In fact, it was really frowned on. But that sort of taught me how to frame history uh, into a good story. It's more about plot and storytelling. Um, but at the same time, you know, you don't want to dumb it down. So I, it, it taught me a lot. And that's when I, um, yeah, started doing trade books. And I actually, there was an ad in the newspaper for um, something called the Biographers Club Prize, which is still going. So I recommend it to anyone who's starting out. And it was for the first uncommissioned proposal uh, of a first-time book, only for a biography, but that's what I was doing. So I applied to that, and I didn't win, but and the agent running it became my agent. And then it sort of went from there. I had a two-book deal, and then you just you just keep going, keep trotting on. Yeah, so the message to everybody out there is get writing. Yeah, just do it. At that, that first book... I, I don't know how would, how was your how was your first book if you look back on it now because if I look back on like my first YouTube video essay I, th- I think they're awful. Yeah, there's a bit of first book syndrome. There's I, what I did was which I sort of see it in others now and and I try not to do so much, but you know manuscript peacocking <laughs> when you just sort of at the back with your bibliography just list every single manuscript you've looked at. Whereas later you just say National Archives or whatever, and you give the series, not every manuscript. So I think I was very aware that I didn't have a PhD, and my footnotes went on and on and on. And I think if I did it again, I'd be a bit more confident in my writing and a bit less trying to be scholarly. But I'm proud of it. It's my first baby, you know. Um, it has its flaws, yeah. but um, yeah, and no, it was a good experience. And actually, it won a prize, the Elizabeth Longford Prize. So it it didn't sell anything at the beginning. Um, but then Antonia Fraser said that she was in the bookshop and it caught her eye and she bought it and put it to her fellow judges. And, and that's how it won. So actually a real stroke of luck, because you know, that gave me a bit more traction and a bit more of a profile. Yeah. And here you are now. Here I am now. The pinnacle. Whole pinnacle has been building up to appearing <laughs> on this two bit podcast with a couple of white middle aged blokes. <laughs> middle aged. where you can end. Yes, Kyle. Middle aged. Embrace um. it. Mm. Not so, yet. no way so going going from the things that uh, make you most proud and your first baby your first uh, your first great love to your much biggest hate <laughs> would you please tell our persecuting mob of history majors out there jesse what is the one thing that you wish people would just stop believing i wish paul that people would stop going on about good queen 
best. I mean, she was, oh, great. God. <laughs> she was great in some ways. She was, she was great in some ways. She was intelligent. She was wily. She had great political instincts. She lived a long time, which is always good. But she wasn't this tolerant, moderate ruler that we keep hearing about. And, and, and this line that I keep being told and has always said to me that she didn't seek to make windows into men's souls. And she never said that. They always say she said it. She didn't say it. Francis Bacon said it about her at the end of her reign. And he didn't use the word souls. He said hearts and secret thoughts, which is a bit different. And, you know, mm. the truth is, it wasn't a tolerant age, of course, but she was not a tolerant ruler. And for Catholics, their mass was banned. Their priests were banned. Um, they had to go to Protestant church services. They would be fined. Uh, later, there were control orders. Uh, there was torture. And about 200 Catholics were executed. So it's, it's, it's not really good Queen Bess for a lot of people. And, and not actually just for the Catholics. Uh, we could talk about the vagrants who were hanged by order of martial law. We could talk about demobbed armada soldiers who were also hanged for petitioning for their wages, which weren't paid. Um, one of them shouted from the, the uh, scaffold, the gallows are the pay they give us for going to the wars. Um, it's not particularly great for the Irish either. So, so, you know, for some, she was actually, she was bloody best. Yeah. Well, now this could be because I am naturally anti-Tudor. Um, and I will always make the case that Elizabeth I is not all she's cracked up to be. And yeah, to bear in mind, my, myself and my wife, we've only ever really had two full-blown arguments. And one of those that almost led to divorce was uh, whether or not Elizabeth I was a good queen. But in all that, I've never actually considered her to be a tolerant person. So who thinks this? Well, where do you get this idea from? Well, I think you're right. I, no one really thought it at the time, um, but they were saying it. Uh, people like Bacon, Burley, John Fox, and you get uh, Thomas Decker at the end of her reign, who's very interesting. He says of Elizabeth... Um, that she brought up a nation almost under her wing. They were almost begotten and born under her and that they never shouted any other Ave than for her name, an Ave, an Ave Maria. I mean, it's complete bollocks. You know, there are thousands of Catholics saying they're Ave Marias, but they didn't fit into this predestined Protestant version of English history. So they're sort of airbrushed either that or they're treated as fifth columnists you know they're all sinister cloaked catholics plotting against her life and there definitely were some but most of them you know wanted to be loyal to her and they were sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place with the pope um also saying that they should disobey her so it's tricky i mean and, and then it carries on into the 17th century people look back in the civil wars and this is again my point about the civil wars knowing about it helps you understand the tudors they look back with sort of rose-tinted spectacles on her reign and you get all these sort of fawning 17th century historians. But even sort of latterly, you get you sort of get a certain type of Tory man who loves Elizabeth I. Michael Portillo, I remember saying something quite fawning about her. Um, Michael Howard as well. Do you remember, um, I think it was in 2002, the um, BBC did a poll called Great Britons. And the idea was to find out who was the greatest Briton. Of all yeah, time. I think Churchill won it, didn't Churchill he? Churchill won it. Well done. Of course he won it. Um, yes. 
<laughs> but Elizabeth came seventh, and the top ten were championed by um, sort of a high-profile um, historian or celebrity or politician. And then it was put to the vote, public vote. And Michael Portillo championed Elizabeth I very well, very eloquently. But he did say this. He said she fought against religious fanaticism and founded our tradition of tolerance. Now, she did fight against... What bollocks. <laughs> exactly. I mean, she did, she did arguably fight against religious fanaticism. I don't, I don't have a beef with that bit. But this idea, this sort of Whiggish idea of our tradition of tolerance is um, it's a bit much, I think. Yeah, when you execute 200 people and you hang your own military, that yeah. that's not screaming one nation under her wing to me, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And she still burnt, you know, she burnt Anabaptists, the more extreme Protestants. And you have, you even have, um, going back to the Catholics, you have one lady who, she was from York, she was called Margaret Clithero, and she refused to plead to a charge of priest harboring. Priest harboring is literally sheltering a priest in your house. Mm. Um, by 1585, if you do that, you, you, you will be hanged for it. it. It's a capital felony. And the priest will be hanged, drawn and quartered. So Margaret Clithero uh, refused to enter a plea. And so it went back to this old medieval penalty called uh, pen forte deux, um, which literally means to be pressed to death. So she was stripped down to a linen shift. She was ordered to lie down. A really heavy door was put on top of her, and then all these weights were put on on top of the door until she was she was crushed to death. Yeah, yeah. Being from Yorkshire myself, you you kind of trip over Margaret Clitheroe everywhere everywhere you go around York. Uh, I think isn't her left hand a relic in the Bar Convent yeah. Museum? Yeah, the Bar Convent Museum is great actually. It's yeah, it's it's worth going to. Um, yeah, and also um, it's possible that she was pregnant too. So it's 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 really not lovely that story. An outlier, I would say, but but even so. Yeah. There was one woman who um another woman who was actually executed. There were only three, I think, who were executed for priest harbouring. But another one um said that Elizabeth I, if she'd had the bowels of a woman, she she wouldn't have treated the priest uh the way she did. And I love that as a sort of juxtaposition to the heart and stomach of a king. Yes, which no doubt we will come to. Speaking of kings, um, when we're talking about the Tudors, one king always overshadows the entire period. So how much did Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, cast his shadow over and create what he became? A lot, uh, in short. I mean, politically, by breaking with Rome to marry Anne Boleyn, um, he's the one who sets up this idea of a national church, the Church of England, and he puts himself at the head of it as, as a supreme head. And that's sort of where all the problems start because the monarch is then entirely responsible for the consciences of, of uh, his subjects. And so that's where Elizabeth would sort of say, well, I have to be a good supreme governor and um, you know, this is what I have to do. I'm responsible for these souls going to heaven or hell. Um, and also just sort of in terms of, of uh, genetics, uh, he's responsible for her in some ways. Her godson, Sir John Harrington, said that when obedience was lacking, she left no doubtings whose daughter she was. And I think she was, you know, she was also very much Anne Boleyn's daughter too. Mm. She had this 
this ruthless streak. Um, you see it in the treatment of her ladies. She was foul to some of her ladies. She had a short temper. And again, yeah, she didn't she didn't pay the, the poor old demob soldiers. And I do think you sort of see it in her sanctioning of torture. Torture was used more in her reign than in any other in English history. And and she didn't have deniability. I mean, her, her signature is on some of those warrants. And she had a very weird, close relationship with um, one of the Persevants. Persevant means priest hunter. And the, the most sadistic and, and horrendous of the lot was a chap called Richard Topcliffe. And he was sort of the queen's man. He was employed by her. He wasn't a member of the council or anything. And he went off. He loved chasing priests. He raped one woman who harbored a priest and he had a torture chamber uh, in his home. And he, there are letters that survive where he writes. I'm sorry. Yep. Let me just go backtrack you a little moment there. He had a torture chamber in his home. Yeah. And he wrote to Elizabeth saying, this is what I'm going to do to this priest, Richard Southwell. And um, he even jokes about how he'll he'll have the priest. He said he'll he'll um, sort of have him hanging with, by the manacles, a bit like handcuffs. Um, and so he'll, he'll just be suspended, dangling. And he jokes and says, oh, he, he'll, like a trick at Trenchmore. Trenchmore was a, it was a court dance where you're sort of a bit jerky and you're all sort of arms up. So it's, 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 it's pretty horrendous. And we, we know that uh, Richard Southwell absolutely was tortured. So she didn't stop it. Yeah, I mean, she's, she's signed it. She's got the details of it. You can okay. We don't have anything that say that actually has a writing down to say. I wholeheartedly approve. Keep up the good work, there, Topcliffe old fella. Yeah, but yeah, there, there's enough there where you've got to say she accepts it and she approves. Yeah, I think so. I think it's sort of back channels there, and um, yeah, I think it's a mistake to think that that she is so sort of feminine and 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 weak and you know all of those tropes. That, that she couldn't countenance torture. I mean, I, I think um, needs must. She was, what she really wanted, to be fair to her, she wasn't really a religious bigot. But what she demanded was obedience. And she had conformed in her sister Mary's reign, her half-sister Mary I, so-called Bloody Mary, where Mary insisted everyone should go to Catholic mass. Elizabeth um, conformed. She went. And um, the difference with Mary is in the previous reign of her brother, Edward VI, Mary refused to go to Protestant um, communion. So I think for Elizabeth, it's, it's political. It's, it's about obedience. And you see that also um, in the legislation, the way acts of religion actually are sort of made to seem like political crimes. Such as? Well, for example, um, it's, it's, it's ne- you're never burnt for heresy. You are, um, if you're a priest, you are not allowed to set foot in English. So if, you, if you've been ordained abroad since 1559, you're not even allowed to set foot on English soil without being automatically declared a traitor and being hand drawn or quartered. So some priests argued, and some of them definitely equivocated and were up to their necks in plots, but not all of them. And, and some of them argued that they were there simply to administer the sacraments you know, to give a dying man the last rites and all this stuff. But because of the legislation that states that a priest is a traitor, then um, that's that. And it's the same with the Catholics who who harbour them. They are guilty of a capital felony. Um, And it's the same as in mass is outlawed. So you're fined and you're fined and then you're imprisoned. 
and 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 these these are seen as political crimes. Any kind of disobedience against Elizabeth, you know, even from not going to Protestant church services, is defined by statute as a political crime. So it's it's quite wily of her ministers. You know, always with Mary, it's kind of cut and dried, black and white. If you're a heretic, you burn. With Elizabeth, yeah. it, it's more like no, 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 no. They were just plotters. And, and there was a chap called um, Thomas Norton. His nickname was Thomas Rackmaster Norton. And, um, and I what his said, line of work was. It's brilliant, isn't it? You couldn't make it up. And he um, he said, "Oh no, we only we only ever torture uh, guilty people." you know, stuff like that. Actually, there's a great, I, one of the funnest things I did for telly was, um, this is when I was a historian, not at the TV production company, but it was for Who Do You Think You Are, America? And it was a guy called Josh Dumel. Have you ever heard of him? Sorry, no. No, I hadn't heard of him either, but he um, was married to Fergie, the singer from Black Eyed Peas, and he was in Transformers and things. And he is super hot. So I'm, I'm going off. So here, he's the hottest person I've ever seen like, in the flesh. Um, with apologies to my husband. <laughs> but anyway, so, so and he's Catholic. And uh, I was sort of the historian at the Tower of London to chat to him. And I think he was certain that his ancestor, Thomas Norton, was um, going to be this Catholic who was persecuted. We went down into the dungeons and there was a replica rack there. And um, then I had to say to him, oh, no, actually, it was your ancestor was the, the rack master. And he was like, <laughs> absolutely outraged. But it was, a, it was a good moment. And it was, yeah, fun, fun telly. OK, so I'm going to dive in because we've got a question that's actually been sent to us by one of our history ragers uh, via Patreon. So Mary Brazier, thank you very much for uh, contributing to the anger. But here goes. So Mary asks, in terms of her tolerance or intolerance, was she consistent, inconsistent? Is there any evidence of pragmatism, idealism, one will for one, one will for another, so forth? That's a great question, Mary. Um, and in a way, as I sort of said, she's, she's actually not really an idealist, um, not in the way that Mary was. She's been called an odd sort of Protestant, an old sort of Protestant. I mean, she quite liked the bells and smells in the Chapel Royal. So um, so she's not really sort of raging with, with religious hatred. And actually, she does curb some of her more bigoted ministers. Um, one minister, you know, really wanted to take away the children of Catholics from their parents. And Elizabeth did kibosh that. And there was another um, proposal that that all Catholics must be forced to take Protestant communion. So the, the law of the land said that they, they had to go to Protestant church services, but they weren't forced to take communion regularly. And uh, she kiboshed that bill too. So she, you can see that she is sort of she does temper the more extreme views um, of, of some of her ministers. On the other hand, though, yes, she's quite happy to sanction torture, imprisonment without trial, um, pressing to death. So I think in terms of consistency, she's consistent in wanting obedience from her subjects. And, you know, let's be fair, from 1585, England and Spain are at war. And from 1570, Elizabeth has been excommunicated by the Pope. Uh, And that basically means that he said to the Catholics in her country, you can either obey me and go to heaven, or you can obey the Queen, but then you're not a proper Catholic anymore and we'll excommunicate you too. So 
the ordinary Catholics in her reign are, are caught between a rock and a hard place. Um, and it's very difficult for them and it's, it's, it's very difficult for her to figure out who are the loyal ones. They all say they're loyal. Some aren't. And, and you know, to sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. So some of the more extreme measures in her reign, there was something called the bloody question, which um, was basically if the Pope invades or supports an invasion by the Spanish or the French, whose side will you be on? And, you know, most people sort of fudge it and sort of say, well, God will tell me at the time or, you know, it depends on this, that and the other. But you can see her ministers trying to sort of find out who's loyal and who's not. And it, and it was very difficult. I mean, in a way, the, the big bogeyman is the Pope here, but it's communicating her. Am I, am I right in thinking or right in getting the impression then that basically if you're obeying, but you happen to be a Catholic, she's not actually got that much of a problem. Yeah. Until the moment that you, and this is this is sort of what my book was about. I think I think the misconception, and you know, I get it at school. You don't have much time to to note all this down and to teach this. But I think certainly when I was at school, I was sort of taught. You know, you knew that there was a bit of persecution going on, but it. But you're always sort of told, but it's it's the fifth columnists and it's the. It, it's the plotters. And there were definitely plots against Elizabeth, real plots. Um, this was the age of assassination. And there's a lot of persecution in Europe, too. But that's what you're sort of taught, that, that she only went after the baddies, but the goodies were all right. The grey area, and it is much murkier, is, you know, what do you do if you are, as Lord Vaux was in my book, you know, just this ordinary Catholic guy, I mean, a nobleman, but, you know, a, a sort of a decent chap, effectively, who has a priest knocking on his door saying, please, 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 you know, give me sanctuary. What do you do? It's very difficult as a sort of, as a good Catholic to turn him away. Or what do you do if you deal with relics and, and you have a relic in your, in your house, but it subsequently, you know, you find out it's the relic of an executed uh, traitor or, or someone that the state says is a traitor or what do you do if you're reading banned catholic literature i mean there are all these sort of or if you sort of you have a, a, a rosary that's come from rome well then well then you're you're in big trouble so there are all these sort of gray areas where you're not necessarily you're sort of passively disobeying by not going to church and and, and then slightly more gray areas of harboring but it's not exactly, you know, you're, you're not plotting to kill the queen at that point. And, and there were very few, you know, out and out plotters. So it's, it's, it's the sort of the harbourers and the facilitators, knowingly or unknowingly, some of them. And for one Catholic, Sir Thomas Tresham, and actually he's in that area where you're not quite sure how loyal he is or isn't. They're never really given a chance when something like the Armada happens that, that they're clapped up in prison before they can do anything. But he said, he described his life as moth-eaten. And he said, suffer us not to be the only outcasts and refuse of the world. You know, please don't make the legislation such that I can't have a priest to give me the last rites when I'm dying. For Catholics, you need a priest. I'm not a Catholic, but, you know, you need a priest. You need the mass. Mm. You need agents of sacramental grace. So, so to ban them is to ban your faith. Well, thank you. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We've mentioned um, some of the agents she sent out to find Catholics and bring them, bring them in for all the horrible things that we've described. Um, but what? How did they go about it? What sort of methods did they use? I'm thinking in particular of the film Bill, when Walsingham's hiding in a giant pie listening into conversations but i'm guessing it's not quite that simple i, I want it to be that simple i hope i pray I it is but i'm assuming it's not i haven't seen bill but that doesn't sound too off to be honest um we've, talked, it! <laughs> we've talked about the torture so yeah, yeah. And, and, and the major novelty for her reign i mean obviously people have been tortured before in other reigns, but that had been sort of torture as punishment. That's more sort of medieval docks mm. and pillory and things like that. What's different in Elizabeth's reign is interrogatory torture, you know, torture under questioning. Um, and, and as I said, yeah, there's more in her reign than in any other. And if you look at, um, as I've done, the 2014 uh, torture report to the US Senate, uh, things that were happening in Guantanamo Bay and places like that are, are, are not dissimilar at all. You know, things and even the euphemisms, stress standing position and things, are very similar to what they said in Elizabeth's reign. Mm. So you have you have the torture, you have control orders from 1593. Anyone who's a sort of whose loyalty is suspected isn't allowed to travel beyond five miles of their home without a license. And then yeah, you get all the searching of houses, um, which often happens sort of really early in the morning when they hope they might catch a priest saying mass. And um, they would they would bang down the doors. If they're not let in, they would they would knock them. They would they would look for hiding priests. They would knock on the walls. They would look up chimneys. They would sometimes pull up floorboards. And they even had measuring uh, equipment to sort of make sure that the walls were all uniform length. And if there was something that was a bit odd, then they'd, they'd pull that down. So they could really strip houses bare um, until they find their priests hiding up chimneys or, or in attics or whatever. So that's um, that That was one method. And then, yes, for Bill, um, we'll see him listening in. I mean, they had, they had a great spy network. There's a book by Stephen Orford called The Watchers, 
which is all about this, all about spyery, as they called it in, in the age. And Walsingham had, he was sort of the first, first spy master. Um, he had quite a sophisticated network of informers. And um, certainly with the Babington plot, which is probably the most famous one of 1586, yeah. that's the one that um, ended with Mary Queen of Scots being executed. And um, it definitely was a Catholic plot to assassinate Elizabeth and replace her with Mary Queen of Scots. And Mary Queen of Scots definitely was complicit in it. Um, so it was more of a sting than um, than any kind of sort of plot devised by Walsingham. But what he did know, he had a man on the inside and, um, you know, an agent provocateur, I suppose. You know, he, he had someone let, allowing it to brew and brew until they had the evidence um, to to execute Mary. So, yeah, he was he was he and Burley. Cecil, William Cecil, uh, who was the Lord Treasurer, those two were a very effective um, sort of flanking uh, chaps uh, around Elizabeth. And Wilson said to Burley, I think in 1568, so quite early, there is less danger in fearing too much than too little. And um, that's how they went about it. Good words. Good words. Okay, well, since we're on a theme of taking Elizabeth I apart... <laughs> Oh, I'm going to enjoy this. I really am. <laughs> so, we all heard about Elizabeth I and Francis Drake and the Spanish Armada and bowls and nonsense and heart and stomach of a king and so forth. Now, I I look at that and I'm not I'm not an expert. I I will grant you, but there is just so much myth making and dare I say even kind of propaganda about that that I'd just like to know a little bit more about the actual kind of facts and the truth of the Spanish Armada. I mean when it's, it's all very well and good standing at Tilbury with a suit of armour on going I have the heart and stomach of a king. It's like the Armada was three weeks ago woman <laughs> and you're in no danger <laughs> but, but this is all part of that massive network of bullshit that's come out about the the, the armada and re- really what is the threat what are the time scales is it bollocks sure um it's partly bollocks but not entirely bollocks um i think all the stuff about her wearing armor and on the white horse and all that i think that's from a poem and it's it's that's that's definitely been embellished over the centuries up to the point that you get Kate Blanchett, you know, with her flowing locks and wearing her very metallic breastplate and all of that. I don't think that is very plausible. Um, Well, she she didn't have hair for a start. (laughs) (laughs) She did, to be fair. She was, you know, super bright. She probably, some people say she didn't write her speech. Well, she might have had a bit of help with some speech makers. She might, it might have, what might have happened is it might have been a little bit polished after she said it. But, um, the sort of concept of heart and stomach of a king, she'd said before in previous speeches and in previous writings. And she was, you know, probably one of the most intelligent people in her court. So I think we give her credit for that and, and for knowing how that would be spun later. Um, mm-hmm. in terms of timescales, you're sort of right, but um, there was still a bit of a threat. I think she gave the speech, and someone will, can write in if I'm wrong, but I think she was at Tilbury on the 8th of August, 1588, and she only found out that the Armada had been sort of swept by the winds 
up the North Sea the following day. So the major battle uh, had happened. The, the you know the fire ships had had, ha- had gone after the, the Spanish fleet. Uh, the Spanish fleet had not joined hands with Palmer's men in the Netherlands. So lots of things hadn't worked out for the Spanish, but there was still arguably some kind of threat. They still could have threatened her shores. So um, again, there's you know there's a kernel of truth there, but it's just been sort of embellished all the way. I think that the major indictments on her really too is not paying her soldiers to the extent that they petition for their wages and and, and hang for it. Um, And then the other thing, which is completely airbrushed and forgotten, um, is that the following year, she sends out an armada, a sort of retaliatory armada, and it just has a total shocker. And it's not effective at all. Um, Proper. Oh, tell me more, because this is is a new one on me. Mm -hmm. There's a book about it, um, and I I should remember now, um, that goes into all the details. I mean, thousands of people uh, killed, and I think they go up, they go up quite far in, um, in actually inland to Spain. But it's but it's it, and she, a lot of a lot of ships and a lot of soldiers she sends out, um, and and it just has no effect whatsoever. And it's sort of mired and 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 all sorts of things. And and they come back with their tail tails between their legs. And it's that bit is is, is not mentioned at all in this whole sort of Gloriana myth. So yes, she did defeat the Spanish Armada. Um, God blew, and they were scattered, as the medal says. Um, and you know, you need a lot of luck to be to be a successful general. Um, so fair play, and she deserves the credit for that. So does, um, and also you know for delegating, because Drake and, and Lord Howard of Effingham did what they were meant to do, and um, they chased away the Spaniards. Whereas whereas Philip II of Spain, uh, miles away, less good communications, had a much tougher time of it and he sort of had this messianic zeal um according to jeffrey parker who's, who's written a great article about it and sort of thinking that god will 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 make it right for him so she was more pragmatic she delegated she gave a fab speech uh she was there among her men she was in some danger but but not not anything like uh the way the movies show it um yeah and she's not personally facing the armada down is she she isn't and she wouldn't have been she wouldn't have been fighting she would have been squirreled away very quickly the mo- the moment there was any real danger well that got me told there mm-hmm. we go yeah so speaking of danger and to start to round things off we mentioned a little bit earlier that elizabeth was really paranoid about assassination um so what if any were the plots to assassinate her in how close did they come to succeeding? Oh, that's really good too. There's you sort of get the first sighted one in 1571, the Rodolfi plot, um, and that's quite murky because the main guy, an Italian called uh, Roberto Rodolfi, was known to William Cecil, Elizabeth's Lord Treasurer, before he set out to Rome to concoct this plot. And you know, all these plots basically have the same end game, which is uh, to get rid of Elizabeth either by toppling her or assassinating her um, and replacing her with Mary, Queen of Scots, proper Catholic ruler. So that one is the first one. I mean, it definitely, you know, the Duke of Norfolk uh, and Mary, Queen of Scots were on board. But ooh, the question of that is how much did Cecil know? Um, and then there were there are two in, 50, in the 1580s that are very famous, 1583, the Throckmorton plot, and then Babington, which we talked about earlier. But really, the 1580s, if you look at the state papers, there are 
tons of plots. Some are not developed at all. Some are just whispers. Some, like Babington, you know, get really quite far. And, you know, this is the age of assassination. I feel like I'm sort of on her side now, which I shouldn't be, should I, in this rage? (laughs) Uh, I need some Stella. (laughs) But... She, you know, that it is the age of assassination. You have you have William of Orange assassinated in 1584. You have um, Henri uh, the Third of France in 1589. Uh, Henri the Fourth in 1610. On it goes. So it is the age of assassination. All it takes is you know a flash of the blade or a bullet. And the pop- yeah, I suppose if I could just burn this one, isn't it? Isn't it 1570 the first assassination by firearm is? is carried out regent moray in scotland yeah yeah i mean that's got to be a wake-up call for monarchs all over europe it's like you you cannot go and mar- you cannot go and walk about your kingdom anymore exactly i mean i i think it's really frightening they don't have standing armies they, they don't even have a police force in england so they do have to be careful they do have to sort of preempt um these plots uh, one way or another and, and this is all very new all this sort of spiry so and also with elizabeth because protestantism is quite new in england and also it's a minority faith in europe in wider europe i mean you know the big beasts spain and france are very menacing and and doing horrendous things to their subjects i mean like the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day in 1572 in Paris, and then it, it, it extends into the rest of France. And, and thousands of Huguenots, the, the French Protestants, are massacred. And it's, it's really grisly and horrific. So she's got all that to think about. So, yeah, I think, and she doesn't name an heir. That's the big problem. Um, she doesn't name an heir. So if she is assassinated, the Protestant state arguably might collapse then and there so for people like Wolsey, Burley, and uh, Robert Dudley, Lester as well mm. you know who who are staunch devout Protestants they have to protect not only their queen but but their country as well and their souls by default. And I suppose as we mentioned earlier the Pope having excommunicated her is pretty much sending out a message to every Catholic out there like you can kill her and this is God's work you know, not not thou shalt not kill, but if you kill her, you're off in heaven. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. He doesn't. He doesn't sort of order them to assassinate her, but he does order them to disobey her. And some can take it further. I mean, what you get, and I always argue that the gunpowder plot of 1605 is really an Elizabethan plot. I mean, it happens in the reign of Elizabeth's successor, James I of uh, England, James VI of Scotland. Um, but it happens because they've been waiting for 54 odd years for some kind of alleviation of the persecution and the penal laws. And they think that James is the answer. He is the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, after all, who's their sort of Catholic heroine, their martyr. And he sort of makes sort of fudgy little promises. He doesn't quite make anything in writing, but he sort of says a few words to certain people that, that, that makes them think there might be some kind of toleration coming up and no such toleration comes. So there's that sense of it's the hope that kills you. And after all those years, you get people like Robert Catesby, Francis Tresham, 
whose parents have been broken and imprisoned and fined and denounced as non-subjects. You have this second generation saying enough already, basically. And, and Robert Catesby famously saying the nature of the disease requires so sharp a remedy. So the gunpowder plot, which actually the Pope at the time did try and, well, the Jesuits say he tried to stop it, or at least he issued sort of edicts saying, um, you know, don't do anything now. And they, at this point, these angry young men, they're just like, enough, enough, enough. We're going to take it into our own hands. So I think, I think the gunpowder plot is a sort of Elizabethan plot, really, the last one. So going back to getting you to rail on Elizabeth again, then, do those plots have merit? You know, would it have been really, would removing her from the throne be the only way that, that Catholics were going to get out of the situation that they were in? Well, it's one way. No, they don't. It, it, it's a bad call, I think. Um, and certainly something as, as horrific as the gunpowder plot was never going to work because, you know, the destruction roared. I mean, I think, and with Elizabeth too, there was something called the Bond of Association that was set up uh, by Burley and Walsingham um, in, in mid-1580s. And it effectively said that anyone who assassinates Elizabeth um, in the name of... of, of Mary Queen of Scots or in the name of the Catholic faith um, will go after you, you know, and, and tons of people signed it, just ordinary people as well. And it's that sense that there will be justice, there will be Protestant retribution. So Burley and people are being very careful and, and, and determined to set up some kind of Protestant succession, even though Elizabeth never named one herself. Well, thank you very much then, because that's shed an awful lot of light um, on uh, on a much maligned or, you know, was that misunderstood monarch uh, on both sides of the equation. I have to say, I don't know about you, but it's done me good to take Elizabeth first down a peg or two, I think, as well. So thank you very much for coming on and uh, and persecuting the Protestants. Thank you very much for having me. It was, uh, it was very cathartic. You feel better? I do. I feel great. Good. <laughs> well. If you'd like to know more, then you can and should purchase any and all of Jesse's books, and you can find those in the History Rage bookshop. We're going to have a link to that in the show notes, and you can follow Jesse on Twitter at childs underscore Jesse. Well, once again, thank you very much for bringing the rage. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage, or individually, I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And we'd love you to join the angry mob on Patreon, because this really helps us meet the cost of podcasting. Just £5 a month will get you early episodes three months in advance, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, as Mary has done today, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.